Dear Father, we thank you for these moments of grace that we see all over the place in Scripture, where you care for your people, where you give them promises and you keep those promises, where you even care for us in the meantime between fulfillments of promises to give us hope of the coming promise. We thank you for all these things, and above all things, we thank you for your Son who has given us salvation by his blood and has brought us into your fold. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Genesis chapter 8. It's been a long go. We are still plugging along. We answered the question last week, has God forgotten us? This is the big question in our sermon series, and chapter 8 is one of the most hopeful chapters, I think, in all of Scripture, and it points forward to that great hope that we have of the millennial kingdom, where Jesus will reign on this earth and things will be restored to their creation order. But each week we will see yet another way how God does not forget his people. God does not forsake his people. So this morning we look at our next chunk in chapter 8, six verses, I think that's six verses, the return of the dove. And this is, it's not a difficult passage to understand, but for some reason it is done quite a bit of abuse. So we want to look at this event and really uh, stress the fact that this is a historical event, not an allegory. This is not to be spiritualized as its purpose, as its intent, or as its meaning, but taken in its plain sense. That's how Noah experienced it. That's how Moses recorded it. That's how the Holy Spirit intends us to interpret it. And so the main point that we are going to draw from this passage is that sometimes we are just supposed to wait. Waiting can be difficult, but you know, God doesn't leave us in abject silence. We have his word that we can depend on. We have prayer by which we can respond to him. And so we do continue to seek him even while we wait, though there are times of rest in the spiritual life where our prayers are not answered, we don't stop praying and wait for him to answer the prayers. We keep praying. We keep seeking him. We keep depending on the promises that he has given. And so we look at this event, which is an historical event. Noah actually sent out these two different kinds of birds from the ark in seven-day increments, and they told him something about what God was doing on the earth. And so we start by looking at the scene as Moses depicts it. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Now, 40 days is not arbitrary. Noah is thoughtful. He is thinking about the way that God has worked, how God has operated. He doesn't immediately send out a raven, but he looks at how God worked in the past. It took God 40 days to flood the earth. So he waits 40 days for the rains 
to disappear, for the flood to disappear. This is scientific. Noah was an intelligent man. So he works off a hypothesis. If it took God 40 days to flood the earth, perhaps it will take him 40 days to drain the earth. At the end of those 40 days, he sends a scout to see, has that indeed taken place? We really do see Noah as a scientist in these passages. And here he's dealing with zoology. He knows the raven's characteristics. He knows the raven's habits. He's going to learn something by the response of the raven and by the responses of the dove. But first we also notice that Noah opens the window of the ark which he had made. Now if you guys are literature fans, perhaps you've heard of Chekhov's loaded gun. This is the concept that when a loaded gun appears somewhere in a story, at some point that gun will be shot. In Genesis 6.6, we get a window with no proposed purpose. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. We saw what the door was for. God closed him in and secured him. And we postulated that the windows could be for ventilation. But you know, in the text, it's never stated that Noah uses them for ventilation. Perhaps he does. Perhaps that's what he thought the purpose was for. But God's word records a much more deep meaning for this. God prepared a means for Noah to see what he is doing in the meantime, before the promises become fulfilled. And so those tiny little windows, just a cubit in, uh, in width and height, Noah uses to build his faith. And so we can take a look at what Noah the scientist learned from his four experiments. At first, he sends out a raven on day 264 of the flood. Some think Noah made a mistake in sending out a raven, and he corrected that mistake by sending out a dove. Whoops, my bad. I should have sent the dove out from the beginning. But no, Noah is still testing something about the earth. Ravens were on the ark because ravens couldn't survive outside the ark in the flooded world. The fact that this raven doesn't come back shows that the earth is stable enough for a raven to survive. This still does bring an element of hope to Noah. Had the raven come back, he probably would have sent the raven out a second time until the raven was no longer returning to the ark. Jonathan Sarfati, I chose this commentary to quote because this is a uh, theological, historical, and scientific commentary on Genesis 1 through 11, the scientific feasibility of Noah's flood. And so he talks about the raven. He says the raven is a scavenger, so he could easily find food from the rotting carcasses in the floodwaters. There was no need to return to the ark because it could rest on the mountaintops, 
now more exposed than they were first, or than when they were first visible. Because the raven did not return, Noah could deduce that there was a substantial amount of land exposed. So the raven could find a resting place. However, as far as providing information about whether the rest of the ark passengers could find or could safely disembark, it was inconclusive. So what he learns from the raven is there is dry ground, and he probably has food, but he can live off carcasses of dead things. There probably are many of those still at that time. And so he chooses a dove next to fill in the gaps. And he doesn't send it right away. He waits seven more days. On day 271, he sends out a dove to see if the water was abated from the face of the land, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. I might point out how careful Noah is with this bird. He is caring and kind. He puts out his hand and takes her in. He is, at this point, the progenitor of the future generations of this earth, the administrator of this earth that God has put as the head of the race to subdue the earth. And he is caring for those creatures which God has created. But what does he learn from this pigeon or from this dove? Doves and pigeons have very strong flight muscles around a third of their weight. So they are powerful flyers combined with their maneuverability. They can cover a long range in a day, but they don't usually eat carrion, that's dead things. Usually they prefer valleys to mountains and like dry and clean places for nesting. So Noah is able to compare these two birds, what he knows about them from observing God's creation. He knows that the raven can survive, but the dove, she likes valleys, not mountaintops. She likes living vegetation, not dead things. And so when she comes back, Noah's first experiment with two, or I guess, first conclusion with two experiments is complete. The ground is not yet ready. Arnold Fruchtenbaum adds to this that the dove is a clean animal and can, can be and has been domesticated. The raven did not return because it was able to live on carcasses, uh, but doves do not function that way. Doves will only land on objects that are dry and clean, and there was as of yet no dryness. Doves prefer valleys rather than mountains, so the dove chooses not to rest on mountain peaks as the raven did. Its return showed that the valleys were still flooded. So some of the animals can survive now outside the ark, but not all of them and not the people on the ark. So he waits yet another seven days. This starts to sound like uh, Abraham's persistent prayer to God about will he destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there are 40 righteous people, if there are 30 righteous people, if there are 20 15, 10 righteous people. Noah is patient in seeking an answer. 
So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening. She stayed out a longer period of time. And behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. This is day 278. Now the olive leaf is an interesting plant, and I learned a lot about it this week. I like what Jonathan Sarfati says about it. Olive trees were now starting to sprout. They can readily grow from seeds and branches, which would have survived the flood. Indeed, olive trees can regenerate from shoots of only 5 to 10 centimeters long. Olives can also tolerate relatively high salinity, a wide pH range, and even stony ground. It makes sense that they would have been one of the first plants producing after the flood. However, though olives can sprout from wet ground, doves won't nest or rest on such surfaces. They can even grow underwater, I found out. The trees were obviously not yet of sufficient size, so the ground was not yet dry enough for disembarkation. So he learned that things are growing, but those things aren't yet big enough for the dove to make her nest. She brought back a sample of the new world, a sample of God's promises being fulfilled. This would have given Noah hope, hope to send out yet another dove. Actually, all three of these are probably the same dove on day 285. Then he waited yet another seven days and he sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Obviously, the implication is she found a place to nest. She found a place that was dry and she found food. A very fragile bird, however, a very strong flyer, she was able to survive in the new world. This gives Noah increased hope. Now notice this is day 285. He has almost 100 days left before he will leave the ark. But this gave him yet more hope to depend on and to wait on God. He got his answer. Each time the birds came back, they showed an increase in survivability of the earth. So all that Noah is now doing is waiting for the Lord to say, it's time. He knows God is working and that is good enough for him. Now this is a superior text. In fact, there are many different... Uh, well, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself there. This is a superior text to the other flood myths. We looked at a bunch of different flood myths about two weeks ago. Each of these six contains an episode with the passengers of a boat which saved the population of the earth, sending out birds in order to test the new earth. There are two Babylonian epics which contain this myth, one from Persia, one from Asia Minor, the Chinese myth of Nua, the Cree Indians, and the Papago in Mexico. Here's a, two, uh, two different quotes from the Gilgamesh epic from Babylon, one of the oldest. It says, On Mount 
Nimush, the boat lodged firm, but Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. One day and a second, Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. A third day, a fourth, Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. A fifth day, a sixth, Mount Nimush held the boat, allowing no sway. When a seventh day arrived, I sent forth a dove and released it. Now with Noah's, Noah waited 40 days, and we can see why. God flooded the earth in 40 days. He might drain the earth in 40 days. In the Gilgamesh epic, it took the gods almost a year to flood the earth. What is the rationale behind waiting seven days to send out a bird? Why wait at all if you're not waiting on God? Here it says it was Mount Nemush that held the boat. It was God who gave rest to the ark. But then look at the order that Gilgamesh sends out these doves, or these uh, birds. First the dove went off and came back. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a swallow and released it. The swallow went off, but came back to me. No perch was visible, so it circled back to me. I sent forth a raven and released it. The raven went off and saw that the waters slithered back. It eats, it scratches, it bobs, but does not circle back to me. Then I sent out everything in all directions and sacrificed. You know, this order wouldn't tell you that anything is changing. The raven didn't come back anyways in our text. What does this add to the passenger's knowledge of the earth around it? It adds nothing. But ours shows that Noah was careful in considering God's ways and that God responded to him by sending the dove back with a beacon of hope, the olive branch. Now in uh, over half of the commentaries I was checking with the last two days, hardly any of them actually deal with the facts of this text. None of them say that Moses's purpose in writing this to, was to record the historical events that took place in Noah's day. They all had spiritual interpretations of what this meant. I was pleasantly surprised though, Martin Luther actually said, this is not an allegory. This is not to be spiritualized. We have to focus on the details of the text as the Holy Spirit gave them to us. And I wholeheartedly agree. So we're going to look at a few of these allegories, and you know, some of them might have doctrinal truth in them. But my point in showing you these is, this is not the point of the text. The text is not teaching these things. However, there may bear some similarities. These are only allusions that we can make after the fact. Israel would not have read this text and come to the conclusion of these allegories. So we look at the first one that the raven is Israel and the dove is the church. Now, uh, despite the fact that Luther said we should not make this an allegory, he made it an allegory. He does handle the text, but then he said the spiritual mind can glean from this text that Israel, like filthy swine, have much in common with the raven. 
This, obviously, is not what God intends by the text. Obviously. In fact, I will point out as we go through these, that each one of these allegories depends on theological presuppositions. We all have those. We have to be careful to know what they are so that we don't confuse them with God's purpose in the text. Our theological presuppositions need to be able to change when God's word teaches us otherwise. And unfortunately, Luther's earthly experience with ministering to Jews and having no response, not one turning to God, he became an anti-Semite. He thought God had abandoned the Jews because he was unsuccessful in missionary work towards them. So he makes the Holy Spirit the olive branch. There are plenty of problems with this. It doesn't answer all of the symbols in the passage. Who does Noah symbolize in this case, one might ask, and why has Noah brought the olive branch of the Holy Spirit? Now, how about this one? The raven is the carnal believer, which is content with death, content with eating or consuming dead things. And the dove is the spiritual believer, who will only settle for those things which uh, are uh, produced through life. And the olive branch then is spiritual fruit. Now, this seems very spiritual, doesn't it? In fact, we might even say that some of this doctrine has some weight to it. The sad fact of the matter is I made this up last night at midnight. This has nothing to do with what the text is teaching. This one, I think, does hold a lot of interesting parallels, but still, this is not what the text is teaching. That the raven is a representative of Satan. It is representative of the evil spirit of this world and unbelief. The man who proposed this uses Job 1.7 and says, just like the raven, Satan wanders back and forth across the earth. And that often birds are used as symbols of the servants of the evil one. For example, in the parable of the sower. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one, whom, this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, the point of Jesus' parable here is to use birds as a symbol of the work of the evil one. But that is not what Moses is doing. He makes then the dove, the Holy Spirit. This has a bit of weight, but you know, it wasn't until almost 2,000 years later that the dove became a common symbol for the Holy Spirit. We can see God's fingerprint on how he works way back then, but the message that Israel was supposed to glean from this had nothing to do with the function of the Holy Spirit with the people of God throughout the ages. 
Again, this man uses this quote from Matthew 3, that the Spirit of God descended as a dove and lighted on Jesus. The Holy Spirit is often used as a, or symbolized as a dove. And uh, I do think this writer was very clever in how he created this analogy. But it is an analogy. It is not what the text is teaching. He correlates the first, second, and third outgoing of the dove with the outgoings of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, that it would not abide with someone, but it would come for a time and then depart. At the second coming in the New Testament, it would come to stay. And in the third coming, it would come to all men in the kingdom of God. Now, there are doctrinal truths here, but again, this is not what the text is teaching. In fact, there are even some challenges here. The Holy Spirit isn't uh, going out and returning here with uh, the church. It's coming and staying with the church. It's not going to depart from the church. In fact, our eternal destiny is to remain united with the Holy Spirit. This will not change us as part of the church. And so it makes the olive branch one of two things, either the cross or the pledge of the Holy Spirit in the believer. This is from Arno Gabeline, who is well known uh, for allegorizing the Old Testament. He is an excellent dispensationalist, which, uh, or who does a great job in never allegorizing prophecy. He always takes prophecy in its literal meaning, which is what I seek to do as well. So I really appreciate this. However, he does one very odd thing. He allegorizes almost every historical account. Usually it's the other way around. The history is taken as plain history and then prophecy is allegorized. We don't want to allegorize anything unless it is plainly stated to be an allegory, a symbol, a metaphor, but here's what he does. He says, especially instructive are verses 6 to 12. Unfortunately, he will not give us any of the instruction from 6 to 12. The raven is the type of evil, but there is a time coming when the black raven will stop his restless flight. When the present age ends with the divine wrath revealed once more and the waves of divine judgment have rolled over the earth, then Satan, the devil, that old serpent will be bound a thousand years. Now, that's what you got from the text when you read it, right? I'd say there's some theological presuppositions here. And you know that's okay to use this as an analogy, but not to teach that that is what the text is teaching. The dove and her threefold departure is a type of the coming and presence of the Holy Spirit in the earth sent forth, sent forth from the Lord during the first and second sendings forth the dove, the, of the dove, the raven, was also present. Both flew over the earth. When the dove went forth the third time, the waters were gone and there was no more raven. Now here's my big contention with this. Where anywhere does the text say that? Does the raven disappear? No, but his theological presupposition was that this is a mere image of the judgment of the evil one. That the raven representing evil had to disappear. 
Now, I might add just from a logical standpoint that the raven is an unclean bird. We learn that in Leviticus. We learn that in Deuteronomy. And what do we know about the unclean birds? There were only two of each on the ark. So if this raven disappeared from the earth, then its mate had no mate. And we would not have ravens today. We have ravens today. The raven did not disappear. Unfortunately, Arno Gabeline created this and taught it as if it were what the scriptures were teaching to fit his theological presuppositions. Now, I am very much in Arno Gabeline's theological camp, so I feel fine saying I very strongly disagree with what he is doing here. We should not handle scripture this way. So how do we apply the narratives? This is important because as we read through scripture, a vast quantity of it is narrative. And when we go through it, are we seeking a spiritual meaning? Or are we seeking to understand the history that is God's story and how he has dealt with man through the earth? So I will give you the three most important aspects of applying a narrative. And I'm going to give them all three to you up front. The first one is context. Second one, context. Anyone want to guess what the third one is? Context. Now, this is not the only thing that goes into interpretation, but the moment you lose the context, you lose the purpose of the passage. The moment you strip it of what is actually going on, you have stripped it of all meaning that God put into it. You can spiritualize it for your own purposes, but you're no longer teaching God's word. A passage has to remain in its context. So what did we learn? We learned that God prepared a means by which Noah could observe his work, observe what he was doing on the earth, that while God was silent, the entire time he was on the ark, he never once forgot about Noah. He prepared, even from the beginning of the building of the ark, for this sending out of the dove. God knew that Noah would need comfort. Because God had given Noah the prophecy of the flood. And he gave them a prophecy of a covenant, which he would make with him after the flood. No one knows he's going from one point to the next. But God nowhere tells him how long the flood is going to be. He is in communication with God when he is sending out God's birds to tell him something about what God is doing. We see this for Israel as well. They are given the prophecy of a coming Messiah. And they are given the prophecy of a kingdom over which he will rule. But something that God does not tell them is how the suffering servant will come to die. 
This was a stumbling block for many of them. That intercalation of the church. This was a mystery. Just as Noah's time on the ark, the length of his stay, was a mystery. So Noah, not out of disbelief, not out of unfaithfulness, but out of faith and dependence on God, and the regular nature of the creation which he made, sends out this dove to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. And on its second journey, it picks an olive leaf. Now, I checked theological sources as well as secular sources. It is not a common characteristic of a dove to bring olive leaves to people. This is not one of its habits. It does have a habit of sleeping on dry ground, of nesting in branches, of eating living things and not dead things. But one habit which is inconsistent with a dove is randomly carrying back an olive branch to a person. This is God using his creation to comfort Noah. This is God interceding to give Noah an answer. Just as Gideon set out a fleece and the Lord answered him by leaving it dry one night or leaving it, uh, putting dew on it one night and leaving it dry the next. Just as God spoke to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. Just as Elijah was fed by ravens. And just as Jonah was given a stock to give him shade. So God intervened here in the natural processes of things to give Noah comfort that what he is doing is part of the plan. That God has not forgotten him. Now, as I was going through this passage, I thought there's another passage that is quite a bit like this. I thought of Daniel, who was captive in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel had a length of time prescribed. He knew that that would be 70 years. And when the 70 years was coming to an end, he began to pray this does not mean he had not been praying beforehand, but his prayer changed. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the numbers of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem namely the 70 years. Daniel is reading God's word. He is trusting and depending on God's word. And at the end of 70 years, he knows that the captivity will end and he expects that the kingdom will be brought in. And the kingdom would be brought in by the conversion of Israel, the confession of their sins and their reception of the Messiah. And that is exactly what he begins to do. 
he begins to confess on the part of Israel. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Daniel knew that he would be in captivity, and he knew that at some point Israel would be restored to their land. And he knew that there would be a kingdom with a king, the Messiah of Israel, ruling over that kingdom. We call these the mountain peaks of prophecy because the prophet is not always given revelation about the valleys. Daniel knew about the 70 years between the captivity and the restoration. But what he did not know was that between the restoration and the kingdom would be 70 times seven years. The angel who came to respond to him came to tell him, it is not yet time for the Messiah to reign over the kingdom. That restoration is not yet. There will be 70 times seven years. And at the end of the first 69 of those seven, sorry, at the end of the first 62 of those seven, the Messiah will arrive, but he will be cut off. It was 69. And then the 70th, will be the tribulation period. What Daniel did not know was that that 70 times seven years would also be punctuated by yet another period of waiting. This one, a period of grace. You remember that Noah did not know there would be a seven day period of waiting before the flood began? It was revealed to him when the time was right. God gives the information that is necessary, but he doesn't give all the information. One reason for this is that his purpose is not to satiate curiosity. It's to instruct, to build faith. And you can't build faith very well by laying out absolutely every single detail of everything that is going to happen so that you can check it off one by one and say, okay, good, God's on track. Rather, we get assurances like God is not, God does not take a long time as we consider a long time to be. That's a bad paraphrase from Second Peter. God doesn't count a long time in the same way that we count a long time, but also he doesn't tell us of some of these intervening periods because he's building our faith. We don't have everything answered. Some things we have to wait on him for. This isn't because he has lacked in revelation. This is because we need to constantly and continually depend on him. I like to use that as an illustration of why Israel had a law that was written down and codified, and they could count them, 613 different laws. But the church has the law of Christ, and you tell me, where are those written down like the law of Moses was? Where are the tablets of stone where the law of, Mo or the law of Christ is enumerated? 
The law of Christ is the New Testament. Those epistles that were given to us as church doctrine. And why don't we know how many there are? Because it's a little more difficult than the law code given to Israel. What was Israel's failing in the law? They kept the letter of the law, but the spirit of it was gone. They were not in fellowship with God. For us, the law of Christ requires that we are in fellowship with Jesus. It requires for us to be actively serving in the body of Christ, that we be actively in communication with Christ himself, that we be intimate with the Holy Spirit, that we constantly be in our scriptures, learning who God is through them. And so I like what James has to say about this spirit, just like Noah, that we should have in the church age. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Noah was not sending out birds because he doubted God. He was just curious. Where are we on the path towards the fulfillment of God's promises? Leopold writes on this passage that such comparatively long periods elapse between successive sendings of the doves. It shows that in the face of all natural desire to be informed as to how far the abatement had progressed, Noah had possessed his soul in patience, the patience of faith. It is significant that he only sent the birds out four times. He got the information he was seeking. Finally, he waited yet another seven days and he sent out the dove and she did not return to him again. This is day 285. Day 323, he is still on the ark. He wasn't looking for a means besides God to discover when he could get off the ark. His response to the lack of return by the fourth bird was not, all right, everyone get your bags. It's time to get off. It was, okay, God is faithful. It came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, that the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. Noah did not get off the ark. God had not told him to. On day 370, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. We know that. It was dry last time he looked. It was dry when he sent the dove. But then, and only then, God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Noah left the ark on day 370. 
the last time God had spoken to him audibly was to get on the ark, 370 days prior. Noah is not doing things his way. He's doing things God's way. This is why he makes it into the, the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. And I often like to bring up this verse, just a few passages earlier, to remind us why the author of Hebrews even included the faith hall of fame. He writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then the author gives over a dozen accounts of Old Testament faithfulness. And in each case, yes, it is the character acting in faith, but it is God acting faithful towards those faithful characters. It is not a one-way direction, that faith. You see Abel, you see Noah, you see Abraham acting faithfully on God's word and God acting faithfully towards them in every case. This is how we should be applying the text. God's faithfulness towards Noah and Noah's dependence on God, his waiting on God and his encouragement from God. You know, we also have something we're waiting for in the future and we don't know how many days until it arrives. We can't know. Only God knows. This is very much on purpose. And it is for the building of our faith. If we knew the day that he would return, we would live like rebels until that day and then repent. And how much would we have to show for it when we got to heaven? What rewards, what crowns would we have to cast before his feet and glorify him with? 1 Thessalonians 4.16 tells us that the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. How many days until the floodwaters abate, and we are again together with the Lord. We wait for his shout from the sky. We wait for him to speak once again into creation and say, now is the time, come up here. And so as we wait, once again, we do what James says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So our takeaway this morning, sometimes we are just supposed to wait. God has not forgotten us while we wait.
Resting in God does not mean inaction. It means interaction with him. This is what Noah was doing. Waiting includes seeking him in prayer. Trusting in him includes prayer and dependence. God has designed it this way to prepare the believer in faith for intimate fellowship with him. This is our eternity. That is the new world that he is preparing us for, is intimate fellowship with him without ceasing. He has given us the opportunity to exercise that even today. So let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for Noah's testament to your faithfulness. We thank you that we see you comforting your people as they seek to know when your promises will come to pass. We thank you that you have given us promises that we can wait on, and we thank you that you have given us a testament to your faithfulness so that as we wait for you, knowing that the day is fast approaching, our faith is built stronger and stronger on the solid foundation of your word. We thank you for all these wonderful blessings. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.